Well, thank you, Autumn. And, uh, you know, we're just blessed with so much talent at this church and uh, music and, and, uh, and service. And you're going to see over the next few weeks preaching as well. We're going to have some uh, uh, fellows, members of this church that are going to be preaching and bringing the word over this series. And I think you're going to be really, really encouraged. If you're visiting us, with us for the first time today, uh, welcome. Your timing's impeccable because we are beginning uh, a summer series called the Timeless Ten. It's on the Ten Commandments. Uh, so for the next 11 weeks, we are going to be studying on each Sunday one of the Ten Commandments and how they apply to the Christian in light of the New Covenant and the New Testament. Uh, there are going to be several references. You might want to grab a pen and paper if you so choose. Because of there are so many misunderstandings about the role of the Ten Commandments for Christians today, uh, th- this message today is just going to serve as an introduction. Then we're going to have ten weeks uh, uh, following this for the Ten Commandments. As you probably already know, noticed, our series title is already loaded. We titled it The Timeless Ten. Timeless should help serve as a reminder from the very beginning, help us understand that the Ten Commandments fill a very important role for us. They're timeless. And my hope is to assure you and reassure you by the end of this message, and especially the end of this series, that the Timeless Ten actually fill the same role today. The same role as what they did you know, 3,500 years ago. When Charlton Heston first walked down Mount Sinai with those tablets in his arms. We count back scripture, that event with Moses uh, happened about 1445, 1446 B.C. according to biblical, biblical markers. Next week, Pastor Weiler is going to give you an overview of that event, a brief overview of Israel's encounter with Yahweh at Sinai next Sunday. That's going to be good. Don't miss that. Uh, So I'm not going to delve into the mountain and into Moses and into that experience and those tablets. My goal really today is one, that is to eradicate a now popular modern fallacy, really a fallacy, that the moral code of the law, the morality of the law, not speaking to the ceremonial um, tenets of the law, uh, but there is a, there's a modern fallacy that the moral code of the law, the Ten Commandments specifically, are of no use today. No use to the Christian. Um, that, that needs to be challenged. It will be challenged. And uh, we need to clarify then what the uses of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, are. Uh, it doesn't require a theologian doesn't require a great theologian to recognize from our scripture reading early in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that the law is good when it is used lawfully. It's really disastrous when it's used unlawfully. So we need to be able to discern the difference, what is lawful, what is unlawful. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. So it is made for those who are unrighteous, for those who are living unrighteous. 
and especially for those who are unsaved. Uh, Paul then continues uh, in verse 10 of 1 Timothy 1 to supply. You probably, you probably uh, perked up a little bit when you, when you heard that laundry list of sins. And that laundry list of sins loosely reflects the last six commandments. Do not dishonor parents. You shall not be murderers or the sexually immoral. It condemns liars and perjurers, etc., etc. Paul is good with lists. He likes lists. He he does a very similar thing in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he lists offenses against God. He includes such things as, as haters of God, idolaters, slanderers, uh, even the covetous, which is idolatry, right? The epistle by Peter, or the epistles by Peter, First and Second Peter, also in a similar way rebuke such behaviors, those who are mockers of God, idolaters, fornicators. But instead of su- supplying lists, Peter weaves them throughout his epistle. All of these behaviors, these sinful offenses, he weaves them through his letters, uh, and he does so so skillfully, really, that it, the apostate church today, that, that has left uh, the, the majority of Scripture behind, they can hardly even read passages from Peter anymore publicly uh, unless they read it in very small sections. Because everything, the, the behaviors are woven throughout Paul, he prefers to address topics, large topics, expound on large topics. Uh, And he, uh, by the Holy Spirit, was guided to write more extensively than any other apostle. And usually he becomes the hero of the liberal theologian. And that's in great part because you can read large sections of Paul uh, on love, for instance, while skipping Uh, large passages where he addresses immorality. You can really pick and choose because um, he goes into length at describing everything from love to to, uh, godliness to immorality and many different things. So you can read large parts of Paul before hitting anything that really pricks our conscience. But we know the verbal plenary. You haven't heard that before. Verbal means every single word. Plenary means cover to cover. The verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, that Scripture is God-breathed every last word from cover to cover, it's one of the reasons that Port St. Lucie Bible Church, we will typically progress verse by verse through complete books of the Bible. You know, that way, if there's something challenging in there, we can't skip it. We can't just waltz over it or ignore it. Uh, this series itself happens to be a little more topical. And that's appropriate on occasions as well. We're going to preach uh, covering ten topics. And the one thing that I would like you to notice today is Paul and Peter and the, the other New Testament writers as well, James, John, Jude, the others, repeatedly direct our attention to sins, sins that we commit that are directed at God, and sins that we commit that are directed toward man, which also offend God, right? And we see in the Ten Commandments a summary of such sins. 
The first four commandments are in relation to God. You shall have no other gods. You shall make no graven image. You shall not blaspheme God's name. Uh, The last six commandments are in relation to man. Uh, Do not commit adultery. Honor your father and your mother, etc., etc. And these simple ten, these simple ten govern how we should relate to God and man. If ten is too much for you to remember, Jesus provides an abbreviated summary. A summary of these timeless ten. A summary that Luke 10 verse 26 shows was already common in use by the time that Jesus had entered ministry. It's a condensed 10, seen also in Matthew 22 verse 36, where a lawyer asks Jesus this, Teacher, which is a great commandment in the law? Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he went on to say, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On just two. The whole law and the prophets hinged. Now Jesus there is quoting the Old Testament. To love your neighbor as yourself and uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. In one passage says strength as well. Um, He is quoting the Old Testament. And what Jesus does in that statement to that lawyer is he takes the prohibitions found in the New Testament, uh, the Ten Commandments, excuse me, eight of them being the thou shalt nots, right? And he condenses them into two positive directives. These are what you shall do. Yet some still say that Jesus never cited the Ten Commandments, also called the Decalogue. Uh, Some will say that he never cited those, never referenced the Ten Commandments or put any emphasis on them. That is a lie. That is a complete lie. If you read the Bible, you know better than that. Um, He surely did. In fact, he recites numerous thou shalt nots in Matthew 19, verse 18. Just one location of many if you want to go look. And Jesus does so because he knows... He knows that when it comes to loving God and loving man, the authoritative source we possess to know how to accurately do that, what love is, the authoritative source is the law, which tells us what it is and what it is not. And uh, often emphasizing prohibitions, thou shalt not. Folks, this is immensely important. I I mean so important. As we live in a society today that attempts to redefine love. There is the, the 60s love. Anybody lived through that? There's an idea that if I commit a crime, whether... Whatever it may be, if it's for the sake, I'll say it's for furthering the well-being of my child. It's for my my child to prosper. I suppose a mobster could say this. Lots of people say, I did it for my kids, right? I did it because I love them. Or if I'm in a gay relationship and, and 
if I have someone I'm living with, then, then you must accept that. You must accept me, and you must accept the person that I'm in this relationship with if you love me. So love, when it is redefined by culture apart from the law of God, it it merely turns people over to their sinful impulses, what they want to do, and they'll just say, this is love. It's been redefined. Um, None of those are love, folks. None can be defined as love, though the word is used so loosely all the time. And a church that doesn't redefine, or excuse me, draw attention back to the true definition of love, to define love. A church that doesn't do that uh, according to God's moral law, they they merely acquiesce to the culture. They simply uh, turn it over to the culture, consents to a cultural redefinition of love. And we're caught up in that in America. Love is used in so many ways that Scripture never uses it. I was asking... uh, uh, last night ran over and saw Jerry and Carolyn. We talked about love. What is love? And the Christian, our, our, a lot of times our first response is, well, it's to give because God so loved the world he gave his only son, right? And that's true. But we need to also look at how do we love? Because we aren't giving our only begotten son. How, how do we interact with one another in a way that is loving? Um, in order for you to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself, it needs to be defined. Love needs to be defined. Um, This is the point. I think of Matthew 25. And we we go there often. It's just a great passage about separation of the sheep and the goats. The sheep and the goats, excuse me. I don't think they're sheeps. But... um, Jesus said, as often as you did this to one of these brethren of mine or these brothers of mine, like giving, giving something to wear, something to eat, you did it to me. And we always go to, well, that's always what love is. You know, we just give someone a cup of water. doesn't matter the morality side of what your life looks like. We think that if we're just doing some good works in some kind, well, then we're fulfilling the requirement of God somehow. You follow me? That, that won't suffice. That won't hold water when you get into the depths of Scripture. Uh, that is where the point, uh, the point where our culture or even liberal theology loves to proof text 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. And it's not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account... A wrong suffered. No record of wrongs. How often have some, has some of you had a family member or know a family member who might have had a child that went off the deep end? Maybe they had gotten involved in something uh, because they had drifted away from home or from church. Perhaps they, they got messed up in love in this culture. Maybe they're in a live-in situation with a boyfriend or a girlfriend where, where that daughter will come in and say, yeah, I, I know, Mom. I know that you don't approve of this as a Christian mom, but, but love keeps no record of wrongs, right? Like, like, like you get a get-out-of-jail-free card because of that definition in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Mom, if God doesn't keep any record of wrongs, why would you keep any record of wrongs? 
That's when we point them to verse 6, because that passage continues. The very next verse, by the way, says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Folks, that's the kind of love that never fails. One that rejoices in righteousness and the truth. And the timeless ten, we will discover that those ten, we will see the truth. The truth. And what it means to love God and what our neighbor will be clear. We don't worship idols. That's loving God. We don't take his name in vain. That is loving God. Uh, We don't commit adultery. That is loving our neighbor. We don't bear false witness, false testimony against our neighbor. That is loving your neighbor. Resultantly, even if you're not an expert in the law, you haven't read a lot of the Old Testament or or haven't had a lot of time, resultantly you don't have to be a theological theologian. You don't have to have a degree by simply memorizing the timeless ten You can say like Forrest, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is, right? In ten commands that God has given. Um, This is one of the reasons from an early age, when I was a little boy, good little boy. I was taught as a child the ten commandments using the small Lutheran catechism. Maybe some of you had something similar. It's been dated a little bit, so I don't, don't really recommend this one. There are better catechisms out there. Uh, there is a New City Catechism that Alistair Begg endorses on Truth for Life. That's a good catechism. Uh, that teaches the Ten Commandments as well. And to catechize simply means to teach by question and answer. Parents might do this using a resource or some other material like we use in Sunday school or through the Bible itself. it's, It's a similar way to how Jesus taught, really, through question and through answer. Pastor Weiler uses the New City Catechism with his boys. He's got three little boys. And uh, when one of them asks uh, about studying the Bible and, and Gerald comes to them and and says, boys, what is the Eighth Commandment? They can come back and say, thou shalt not steal. And when a catechism asks the child, what does this commandment mean? How does it work out? Explicate this command. They are taught using a resource, my old Lutheran Catechism, by the way, when it says, Thou shalt not steal, we were taught to answer, What does this mean in Sunday school? It means, We should fear and love God, so that we do not rob our neighbor of his money or property, nor bring them into our possession by unfair dealing or fraud, but help him to improve and protect his property and living. Folks, that's what love is. That's what love is. Do you, think, do you think this is the same definition of love that you would get watching the morning television shows? Do you think it's a sample of what you would 
would learn about love watching the evening programs. Or listening to, well, I'm not even going to mention any names. Do you think this is what you're going to hear on television in general? Any secular television? Obviously not. Obviously not, because they don't know what love is. They don't know. They, they have been taught to define love as, as an erotic impulse or, or a sensual desire, a passion. Um, what they define as love is actually translated in the Bible as porneia. It's where we get our word pornography, you probably know already. That's what they define as love, and it is sexual immorality or fornication. That's what they call love, free love. That's 60s love. That's the love today. And when you jettison the moral law, God's law of, of, uh, of truth and righteousness, there remains no compass after that to know what love is. You can't know what love is. Love isn't a feeling or a passion. Love is a feeling that leads to action. Not a feeling, excuse me, the truth that leads to action. That which you learn about not to defraud your neighbor, put in action. It's the truth. And, and to gain a proper understanding of love is just one of the many reasons that in our homes, Sunday schools, and churches, Christians teach the timeless ten. We teach the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments provide knowledge as what it means to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. So that when Jesus tells us, love God with all your heart, your, your soul, your mind, and your strength, we know. We know how to act when he says that. Tragically, this is a real tragedy. Um, this isn't the reason, by the way, that we came into this uh, series. I thought it'd just be a great series to get uh, topically to get uh, some of our other preachers involved. But it's really tragic that there is now a modern, modern theological movement. It, it's really an undertow that suggests the Old Testament has no application to the church today. Some claim that the only books pertinent to us are the New Testament, so they only teach the New Testament, and at best, they teach it selectively where they don't run into any of those commands from the Old Testament. But in my New Testament, Paul writes that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, ready or approved for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed. When Jesus quoted Scripture during His earthly ministry, what was He quoting? The Old Testament. When Jesus says in John 5 verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, it is these that testify about me. Which scriptures is Jesus talking about? The Old Testament. When Paul and Silas went to Berea and they go to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue in Berea, and in Acts 17, verse 10, it says that those Bereans were more noble-minded than those, I think, in Thessalonica, I believe is what it's compared to. Why? Because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what they were told by Paul the Apostle is true. Which Scriptures were they searching daily 
in order to validate what was being told to them about Christ? The Old Testament. They were Jews in the synagogue. The New Testament wasn't even circulated yet. And even if small portions were by that time, perhaps James or one of the earliest letters, um, even if they had, Berean Jews in the synagogue would not have received such writings unless they were validated through the Old Testament, right? As a church family, we've witnessed really the validity, the legitimacy of this ourselves. We've studied through uh, the books of Ruth and, and, uh, and Jonah, cover to cover in those. And if you were here during that time, you would probably agree the picture of Christ in those books is magnificent. It is magnificent, the glory of Christ seen in the Old Testament. Of course it is. Jesus said, it is these Old Testament scriptures that testify about me. The Old Testament is is about him. His fulfillment of everything from the Old Testament. You can't toss it out. There are 66 books in the Bible. They form one book. One book. You can't separate Scripture from Scripture. Jesus said Scripture cannot be broken. In in fact, when he says Scripture there, it's in the singular. He doesn't say Scriptures can't be broken. He uses the singular. Scripture. This is one book. One book. Cover to cover. We don't set it against itself. One testament against the other. Um, the 66 books are one. Um, in fact, you're going to read through your Bible and you're going to often see all, uh, quotations all in capital letters. And, and you, when you look at those, if you have one of the translations that does that, not all do, but most do. Mine does. Uh, I, th- I don't think the ESV does. But the NASB, the King James, the New King James, Holman Christian Standard, it's a good help. And when, it, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, you'll see it in all capital letters. Go to the book of Hebrews sometime and look through there. And Hebrews is a letter that is teaching those of Jewish heritage that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything from the ceremonial law, from, from, for righteousness, for everything. Look how many quotations uh, through the book of Hebrews are in all caps. It's Old Testament. It's Old Testament. You can't possibly separate the two. Yet people try. Yet people try. Um, It becomes easy to understand why Jesus would say, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Fulfill. All understanding now is made clear through him. Uh, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's Matthew 5, verse 18. John MacArthur comments wisely on that passage, saying, quote, Here Christ was affirming the utter inerrancy and absolute authority of the Old Testament as the word of God, down to the smallest stroke or letter. Again, this suggests that the New Testament should not be seen as supplanting or abrogating the Old Testament, but as fulfilling and explicating it. The New Testament fulfills uh, 
the law and the prophets by explaining it in fullness. Uh, it's never done away with. It becomes the basis, really, of everything that we believe in Christ, as Christ is seen as prophecy's fulfillment. Why is it important, then, with the Ten Commandments? It is because when false teachers trash the law and the prophets or attempt to dismiss the Old Testament or, or in some, some fashion sabotage its authority, they normally scrap the Ten Commandments with. They throw it out as well. And even though uh, they do so even though nine of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament are restated, even, even a couple of them expanded. And the other, the Sabbath rest, finds its fulfillment in a man now, the Son of Man. We rest in the work of Christ. We rest in the Son of Man rather than a particular day. They're all restated in the New Testament. And there are some who suggest, you know, we should just forget about the morality of the Old Testament. Forget about it. That those old archaic commands are not for us today. Folks, beware of anyone who tells you to detach the, Old Test, or the New Testament from the Old, or vice versa. It can't be done. It can't be done. Scripture can't be broken. Uh, beware of anyone who suggests that there is no, um, there's no need to follow the moral commands of God today or the Ten Commandments as a Christian. So often, and I hear it online a lot and in articles that I read, there are so many who are trying to dichotomize or set Scripture against itself to fight against itself and dismiss the Old Testament. That's not a new heresy. It really is not a new heresy. In fact, it is a very old heresy. Uh, it's, it's just a reformulation, a revised reformulation of one of the earliest heresies called Marcionism. You ever heard of Marcionism? It applies to this. Around 150 AD, Marcion was an early church bishop. And he is primarily known for his belief that the Old Testament scriptures were not authoritative for for the Christian. That's what he thought. He could not reconcile Jesus of the New Testament with the teachings of the Old Testament. He couldn't figure it out. It didn't make sense to him. And like many pastors today, Marcion appears to have been really ashamed of the God of the Old Testament. He's ashamed of what he saw in the Old Testament and God's righteousness and and purging peoples and and going in and taking the land and and wars and other things. And and these teachers become ashamed. They don't even want to talk about it because they don't want to have to explain the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and the justice of God. All they want to talk about is love. Love. Um, Marcion, for him... Jesus was the Son of God of the New Testament. Son of the God of the New Testament. But not the Son of that deity that was described in the Hebrew Scriptures. The deities of the Old and New Testaments, from Marcion's perspective, actually represented two different gods. This is what we've got to be careful of. Listen to this brief summary of, of this cancerous growth called Marcionism. This is from gotquestions.org. Great site if you ever get online. And what I really like about them is they're peer-reviewed. It's just not one guy putting his opinion on YouTube. 
No, they're peer-reviewed, they're very credible, and, and they give answers in concise language. Gotquestions.org. Great website, at least of, as of today. Um, no, they're great, really. I've, I've found very little in there that I would, would even disagree on. But I'm sure there's peripheral stuff. But I, I recommend them. Their article says, After being expelled from the Church of Rome in A.D. 144 for his unorthodox teachings... Marcion formed several of his own churches. Great. He spread his heresy through satellite churches. Many of which retained a church government similar to the Orthodox Christian churches of that time. Great. It even looked like real church. From there, Marcion's views began to spread. Given Marcion's complete separation of the God of the Hebrew Bible from the God revealed in Jesus, it should be no surprise that he also rejected the authenticity of many New Testament documents. Any apostolic writing that did not comport with his theories, now who is given in, right? He's asking the Scriptures to yield to him. Any apostolic writing that did not comport to his theories was eliminated until all that remained of his collection of authoritative books were ten of Paul's letters and a highly edited version of the Gospel of Luke. Marcion saw Paul as the only legitimate apostle. Told you how a lot of these new liberal churches only like to talk about Paul. Only parts of Paul, but listen to this. He saw Paul as the only legitimate apostle, but even Paul's writings suffered under Marcion's scalpel. Any passage that identified the God of the Old Testament with the Father of Jesus was removed. You get far enough down the line. You take out the Old Testament, you've got to take out all those all-caps quotations from the New Testament. You can't do it. You can't do it. Fortunately, we know, we know that the Ten Commandments are fully restated. They're both explicitly and implicitly in the New Testament by Christ and his apostles. So they remain in effect today. They remain in effect today. Listen for the timeless 10. As Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That means that's in the past. We can't go back to those behaviors. And, 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 and give affirmation that we're truly, um, truly restored to God. Now, that doesn't mean we don't slip. Which of us doesn't slip? We all fall down. And uh, Scripture tells us that we have a, uh, a person interceding for us as we slow down. But we don't jettison the commands of God. Um, these ten all remain God's commands. They're not all of God's commands. There are other commands. They're a summary of God's commands. And the ten do serve as a summary. Uh, we keep them. We keep them. The Apostle John writes, 1 John 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love 
the children of God, we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Is it burdensome when God tells you, do not steal? Is it really burdensome? Or how about, do not murder? Thou shalt not murder. Is it burdensome when he tells us, you, you shall not blaspheme my holy name? None of these are burdensome. None of these are hard. I don't find it extremely difficult to obey these commands. They, they, they provide great boundaries to our lives. They keep us out of trouble. They're good for us. The law is good when used lawfully. And if I do sin, in fact, if any Christian sins, we have an ad- advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. For Paul says, those who are born again by the Spirit of God, he says this, shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Can't. Can't live in it. The fallen conscience, our our human conscience, it brings a guilt. But the conscience alone, it's insufficient and it's too corrupted to guide anyone especially unbelievers. Conscience is no guide to them. This is why the uh, Christian, uh, especially a fledgling Christian, a new one just hatched, uh, they'll ask things like, you know, well, do I really got to move out of that relationship that, you know, that immorality is going on? Yeah, I love her. No, you don't. You don't love her. Because you're breaking God's commands being with her. You're trying to enjoy self-gratification. That's not love for her. So, so they learn. They, they learn things like, because they don't know right as they come out, uh, first come to Christ. A lot of things we don't know and we're still working on. But, but they don't, is, is abortion, you know, is that murder? Is it? They need to be taught. They need to be taught because they have questions. What about other things, creation and other things, each has to be addressed by the church today. Um, a new Christian needs knowledge in order to follow his compass. Got to have knowledge. For the corrupted will, the corrupted will of the sinful flesh, it will always bend the needle of our compass to the direction that we want to go. That's what the flesh will do. It'll bend the needle. Does the corrupt, fallen human will adequately direct our unredeemed culture as a compass. Not even close. Not even close. No. They, they don't understand the law. They don't acknowledge sin. They redefine sin. By their compass, it's a sin uh, to tell a woman what she can and can't do with their own body. Well, we've, been, we've had prostitution outlawed for generations. You bet we can you bet we can make laws for that type of stuff. Um, some want to license it. They don't know God. They don't know God's law. Is it a sin to tell two consenting adults who they can love? Again, it's always referring to sensual love. That's what they say. They don't know love. 
Um, but if you embrace a biblical definition of love, a biblical definition, you can really love anyone. We can love anyone if we have a biblical definition of love. In fact, we're commanded to love everyone. What does that look like? Thou shalt not steal. You won't take from their neighbor. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not uh, uh, fornicate with your neighbor's spouse. Thou shalt not covet. You won't scheme to find a way to get their stuff. Folks, that's what love is. That's what love looks like. It's not just an emotional feeling. We have emotions, not discounting those, but they're incapable of guiding us. Um, do God's commands, the Ten Commandments especially, to love, and do they become burdensome to the unbeliever? Oh, oh yeah, they do. Does the law then serve a purpose for them as well? It does, it does. Without God's Spirit, can they obey the law? without being indwelt with God's, by God's Spirit? Please answer no. Because if they could, then there'd be an alternative way to heaven. Just obey the law. They can't obey the law. They obey the flesh, the sinful flesh. Uh, due to their corrupt sinful nature, it remains impossible for them to obey God and to love God. Um, their human will, it's in bondage to sin, and it cannot free itself as Martin Luther correctly established in his book, The Bondage of the Will. There, there's no freedom to embrace God and follow His commands before spiritual conversion. Not possible. It's impossible. There's no such thing as that freedom to embrace God, uh, free, a free human will for the unsaved. Scripture never uses such language not free it's not free scripture says christ set us free well what does that mean means we weren't previously free before christ we weren't free we were turned over to our sinful flesh but christ set us free not entirely for uh from the struggle against the sinful flesh or our sinful nature but the chains of depravity that kept us dead to God have been broken, so we now, uh, now enjoy the ability to obey God as his slaves. We now can obey. That is what Peter calls freedom in 1 Peter 2, verse 16. We've been set free um, to, to be bond slaves of God. Um, before salvation, we weren't free. We were in chains. So when we previously looked at the law, it chafed at us. It chafed at us. We didn't want to see it. We didn't want to see it. We want those Ten Commandments removed from the public square. Get them out of here. Love your neighbor as yourself. Get it out of here. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Get it off the public square. Thou shalt not steal. Get it out of here. That's where our culture's at. Cover it up. I'm offended. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Because the law brings condemnation upon the unbeliever. The Ten Commandments bring that com uh, condemnation. If you, rem if you remember your life before being a believer, you probably were looking at the Ten Commandments, as I did, asking, how can I measure up? How can I measure up? It says, do not commit adultery. Jesus said even to look at someone 
is committing adultery in their heart. Anyone guilty? Don't raise your hand. I remember as a youth, I memorized and was learning, keep the Sabbath day. And I looked at the habits of my family, and I'm like, how do we do that? How do we do that? I scratched my head. How does my family do that? How about this one? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Who here has never misrepresented someone else's intention? If you haven't, you surely aren't in politics. Bearing false witness. Thou shalt not bear false witness. The unbelievers say, get that commandment out of here. We want them gone. Or let's even try Jesus' summary of the Law of the Prophets. Who here has loved God with their whole heart, their whole mind, all their strength, soul? Um, Who's loved their neighbor as themselves perfectly? Anybody? Yeah, I kind of laugh. I kind of laugh when I hear spiritually sounding people say, you know, we Christians, we don't observe the Ten Commandments anymore today. We just love God with our whole heart and we love our neighbor as ourselves. You do. You lying dog. You don't love the neighbor as yourself. You've broken even just two. Even just two. Can you imagine if even just those two were what God required for us to be saved? Who could do it? Who could do it? But if to love God and your neighbor means... Don't have idols. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. We can get ballpark. We can love as God truly wants us to love as a, as a born-again Christian. And uh, that's why we have to qualify a definition, what it is to love. We must define love. Um, yet, yet sin. Sinful flesh prevents us from ever reaching perfection in this lifetime. But they're not burdensome. In the book of James, our Lord's half-brother writes, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit murder, but do commit, uh, excuse me, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Everybody's broken the law. It's James 2, verse 10. When you've transgressed the law at any point, you're guilty of all. You're condemned by all. And uh, you stand condemned before a holy and a righteous God. So you, you can't be saved by keeping the law. You cannot. You look at the Ten Commandments, nobody's ever been saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. The Old Testament, they weren't saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. Abraham was justified by faith. What purpose does the law then serve for the non-Christian? There is a purpose. There's a good purpose. Paul wrote to the Galatians, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through, through faith in Christ Jesus. What this means is the law was a tutor. Looking at the law, it's a tutor where we've got to find some way of reconciliation 
with God. We've broken his laws. You look at them all. We've got to find a way to reconcile with him. I, I don't measure up is what the laws teach us. They're a tutor. But once we are now in faith, uh, have faith in Christ, we no longer need the tutor for reconciliation. The law no longer serves then as an evangelistic device to lead believers even closer to Christ. Once we are in Christ, we're in Christ. It's no longer our tutor. That doesn't mean we become antinomian, which means against the law. That we just... We just chuck the law and the moral elements of the law. That, that's a different heresy we'll talk about a different day. Antinomianism. And, and that is what liberal theology su- suggests today. Now that we are in Christ, we can just behave however we want. That's why there are churches that, that openly ordain homosexuals. That's why there are churches that uh, uh, defend abortion. That's why all these different things are going on. Because they're antinomian. They've discharged the law. They've discharged the Ten Commandments. Just say, well, just loves one another. Turn them over to their sensual lusts is what they are saying. Let's sin so that grace may increase, they declare. Jesus' other half-brother, Jude, warned the church against this. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you would contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord into licentiousness and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on then with Jude? going on today just because scripture told us we're almost done just because scripture told us in 1st Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 the law is not made for a righteous person don't mistakenly conclude that the law is of no use to the righteous person without the law we have no moral standard of ethics with which to govern society or the church Without learning the law, we, we have no tutor in order to lead others to Christ. Without the law, the Christian has no moral compass to divide right from wrong. Can you imagine, can you imagine trying to witness to an unsaved person about the holiness of God and, and, and not have a proper handle on the morality of God? What, what would you substitute? What else is there? What then becomes sin? Can you imagine telling uh, a soul that they are a transgressor, that they've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you can't recite to them a single commandment of God? Or someone who says that you should not steal and Christ will change your life, yet I still steal? There's no rational... Conclusion to any of this. May it never be. How, who, how shall we who died to sin live in it? Uh, we can't discard the moral law. As we wind down, this is very important. If you're a bit confused about how all this works, the final part is important for you. J- just set aside for a moment everything that we've discussed. Focus only on this. 
You can't be saved by keeping the law. Can't do it. No one's ever done it except Christ. You're saved by recognizing you haven't kept the law. You can't earn eternal life by keeping the Ten Commandments when actually all that you really do is break them before coming to Christ. So what they are designed to do is expose your sin so that you pursue a solution for your sin. You've broken God's law. It may be idolatry, theft, adultery, stealing, probably a combination, if you're anything like me, before coming to Christ. And God's God's divine standard is perfection. You've fallen short. You've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And your wages of sin is death. What you earn through sin is death. And death is spiritual separation from God permanently. You're eternally separated from God by sin and you will die in your sins and you'll be separated from God in hell for eternity. That's what death looks like. The holy requirement to enter heaven is sinless perfection. So we got a problem. What then do we do? What then do we do? We don't do anything. Christ came and did it all for us. He already did it. As God's holy divine son, he lived the perfectly sinless life. He never sinned. Unlike you, he never broke any of his father's commands. He obeyed perfectly. Born of a virgin, Jesus became the human embodiment of obedience, of perfection. And he offered himself in body and blood to take the punishment that we deserve in hell. On the cross, he became a guilt offering, bearing the punishment for every one of our sins in his body and he was, as he was crucified on the cross. And he, he paid it all for all who will believe. So Jesus became our substitute, not only in death on our behalf, but also in his perfect sinless life. He was our substitute in righteousness. Scripture assures that whoever believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Believe. Believe. Um, This has been the same door to salvation through faith from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Saul to us today. No one has ever been saved from hell by keeping the law. Not even during the Old Testament. You're saved by believing the Holy Christ kept the law for you that he died in your place, that he rose again for you. For by grace we have saved through faith. He's our substitute. And God credits our, uh, his righteousness to us when we believe in him. You can become perfectly righteous today before God in believing in his perfectly righteous son. I'm going to ask the men to come forward to serve the Lord's Supper. We practice open communion at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. If you believe that Christ died for your sins and that he rose again from the dead, we invite you to to share with us in communion. You have to examine your own heart. Even as a believer, have you continued to break God's law? We have an advocate with the Father. Does our sin grieve us? 
Does it grieve you that someone as righteous as Christ had to die in your place? And will you serve the Lord Jesus as your master? Oh, Nathan, would you pray before distributing the bread?